We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, why data is no oil, fake news automation, and the Buddhist robot. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Sandra, what happened on the future this week? Lots, Kai, lots. Turns out data is not the new oil and AI fake text generators are too dangerous to release out in the wild. And finally, we'll present you with this week's robot, a Buddhist robot, a robot that can lead a congregation in sermon. Our first story this week, however, comes from Wired magazine and it's titled, No, Data is Not the New Oil. Well, hang on there. We all know that data is the new oil. And here's Kai Fu Lee, the CEO of Sinovation Ventures, explaining it to us. Data is the new oil and China is the new Saudi Arabia. So China has all the data, not only more people, but more depth, because so many services are digitized. Kai Fuli is, of course, also the former president of Google China. And he's not the only one saying this. We've had the New York Times talking about how data is the new oil in the context of the Facebook privacy scandals. We've had the economists dedicate entire articles discussing that the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil but data. And of course, we've had Wire magazine itself talking previously about the value of data and the value of collecting these vast amounts of data. So likening data to oil obviously implies that it's now one of the most valuable resources, valuable ingredients in doing business. But as the author of the article, Antonio Garcia Martinez, points out, that comparison actually breaks down fairly quickly when we look at what oil as a resource does and how data behaves and how indeed data is very different from oil in the first place. So data is the new oil is one of those things that's now just generally accepted as being true. So we thought first thing we should do is let's unpack this. In what ways is data like oil? Or or is is it? it? Exactly. The first point that the author makes is that oil is a commodity. Oil is a commodity in the sense that it can be bought on the spot market. There's a few qualities, but when you buy oil, you have oil, you can use oil, there's a price for it. You can on-sell it and it's still oil. While with data, that is a fairly different beast. So he makes the argument that if Amazon put all its past sales data on a bunch of hard disks and put it in a big truck and delivered it to your house, it wouldn't quite be the same for you, that data, as it would be for Amazon, because that data, of course, is highly valuable for Amazon as it underpins the way it does business. But taking this data out of Amazon is not the same. It's not like someone could buy this data and use it the same way Amazon does. It would lose a lot of its value that it has in the context of Amazon indeed. It doesn't mean that none of that data would be of value to others like competitors, Walmart, and so on and so forth, but it certainly is far from being a commodity. In this sense, it's really an unhelpful analogy to compare something that is 
quite transportable, quite transferable to data that is, you know, functionally abstract and also not equally useful in contexts other than the ones in which it has been gathered. And this is not the only way this comparison breaks down. Let's look at the creation. If you want to have oil, you need to do exploration, you need to build facilities, you need to mine oil. It is highly costly to actually produce oil, uh, which you can then sell. Whereas a lot of the data that we're talking about is just a byproduct of activities that either the business engages in when, you know, transactions are being generated, people buy from Amazon, or that people engage in when Facebook collects data about people's activities, what they like, what they post. It's technically digital exhaust. All traces that you leave and as you interact with your apps on your phone, as you engage with social media, with maps, as you purchase goods and services, all of it generated without you actually making an effort and with little effort on behalf of the organizations that collect this data to do so. Absolutely. And oil is oil is oil, but data is not necessarily data. Not all data is the same. So the article, for example, makes the point that some data like pictures we post on Facebook or the posts themselves might not necessarily be valuable to Facebook in the sense that it tells you all that much about what you're interested in, but it just feeds the feed and it keeps other people interested and it makes the platform more sticky so that it keeps people engaged. Whereas what you like, you know, the apps you use, some of that information feeds directly into building your profile. So even on platforms such as Facebook, the data is not the same. But what I want to point out is that some data retains its value over time, while other data can age fairly quickly. So if you have location data that you want to utilize to present someone an ad, for example, then that data is valuable to you in real time. But as the person moves along, the data points become less and less valuable. As behaviors change on the platform, the data pool that is being collected ages over time. And so if I was to obtain Facebook's data from five years ago, it wouldn't be nearly as valuable as the data that Facebook collected today. And yet there is some data that will retain its currency for long periods of time. And I think this is another aspect that we could discuss. And in this way, maybe data is a bit like oil. Quite often, all the conversations around data revolve around the fact that this is the data that you collect through social media or location data. But what about DNA data, for instance? We spoke previously on The Future This Week about 23andMe or Ancestry.com or even open repositories that have mapped the genome of millions of people that now hold that data and that is not only valuable to infer things about the people who have generated that data, but also data about their relatives or their children that can be then used to make either policing decisions or to inform insurance decisions and so on. And in this respect, that data doesn't age at all, and it has actually value beyond the context in which it has been collected. Also, I can break up oil in discrete quantities. So, you know, I have a million liters of oil, I can sell half of it and retain half of it. With data, it's not quite the same. So, for example, an individual user's data might not be of much value, but when that data is combined with other users and groups and contexts and communities, the value exponentially becomes more useful and more valuable to the company. If you were to cut this in half and all of a sudden you only had half the data of that community, the value of that data would be diminished by more than just halving it. So, 
for all intents and purposes, data behaves very differently to a commodity. It's contextual, it can age, it becomes more valuable as you combine it and accumulate it. And there is a marked asymmetry between the people who generate it and could even own it and the people who can actually make use of it when it's aggregated. Yes, indeed. So, for example, the transaction data that Amazon collects about me, it's nice for me to know what I have bought from Amazon, but that's just historical data and you know it's good to know that I can look this up. But Amazon can do much more with this data. It really becomes valuable to them. Exactly. So the data that you have is much more valuable to a company like Google or to a company like Facebook that can aggregate that with other data that they collect from their other users and then can monetize that by allowing advertisers to reach you, for instance, which is way more than what you could do with your own data. So that then brings us to the question, who should own this data? And should I be paid for giving up that data? Should Google or Facebook have to pay me for this data because, of course, it's very valuable to them. Why shouldn't I benefit or partake in the proceeds and, you know, shouldn't I be getting what's often called a data dividend? There's a number of ways we could look at answering this. And the answer that is most often discussed and that we've also had a number of interviews here on Sydney Business Insights has been, yes, of course, people should be paid for that data. And it's intuitively as easy and as right as data is the new oil. Let's first look at the argument that the article makes, which is how much money would your data be worth? How much would you get paid? And let's remember that if you look at oil dividends, Alaska pays nearly $1,600 per person. Saudi Arabia certainly pays a lot more than that to its citizens as an oil dividend. But Wyatt did account of the Facebook global citizenship and your data is worth about $25 in a year. It's a bit more if you're in the US or Canada, it's about $130. Don't spend it all in one place, they say. The point being that individually that data isn't worth all that much. And that goes back to the fact that not all of this data that you create is immediately useful. And also that individually that data is not necessarily all that valuable. Or it's very hard to put a value on that data initially because it becomes valuable as it is being used later on. And let's not forget that most of these organizations actually aggregate data from a number of sources. So it's not just the individual data that you generate on the platform. We've looked in previous episodes at a number of companies that would sell this kind of data and that then a company like Facebook or like Amazon would aggregate and then produce insights out of. And we've just seen in a recent article last week that Facebook has been in the news again as they've been swooping data from apps that use Facebook's analytics service, data about women's fertility cycles who used an app that was not in any way related to Facebook for their family planning, and a number of other apps from which Facebook obtained user data, data about user activity, which they can then combine with the data that they are collecting anyway. So this to me raises two types of questions. One is, actually, is this the right question to ask in the first place? After all, if you are using Facebook, you are still using a free service. So the moment they would start paying you, you would have to start paying them as well, because now that is an exchange. Whether that's fair or unfair, we could also debate. But you are using a free service, 
And that is the same with a number of other apps that collect data. The second is you mentioned things like family planning. A lot of that information is the type of information that you might not be willing to share with any organization if you are aware that that is being collected. And that is frankly what shits me the most about this argument, because to say, oh yeah, you know, if you give up that data, you should be paid for it. I think most of the data or a lot of the data that Facebook and these platforms use to run their business model, you know, regarding advertising, they don't want people to know that this data exists in the first place, the extent to which user activity is being tracked. So it does not become a question of whether I'd be willing to sell this data or should I have ownership of this data. I wouldn't want this data to exist in the first place. So examples of this, we have seen period trackers that share very intimate information about women. We've seen meditation apps that might have, you know, specific practices for if you're stressed, if you click on that, or if you're depressed, that would be sharing very sensitive information about your well-being or your mental health that could be disclosed to, say, insurance companies. Let's not forget that Google's algorithms pass through your Gmail texts and try to sell you advertisements that correlate with the topics discussed in emails. People simply wouldn't give consent to actually sell access to this information if they were asked to do so. Which then raises the interesting point of if you were to monetize this data, who would actually disclose it? Because we can make an argument that we might be able to afford not to disclose it and pay, let's say, a monthly fee to access Facebook or to access certain Google services. But indeed, this could be another case of trying to provide some sort of remuneration in exchange for data on people would create further inequalities in which some people would have to disclose that information in order to gain access to these services, whereas other parts of the population, much better off parts of the population, would be able to maintain their privacy and to access services without the need to disclose the information. And we've made this argument previously, privacy in that instance would then go from a fundamental human right to a commodity that is being traded and something that you either can afford or cannot afford to have. So to sum up, data is not like oil. But here on The Future This Week, we actually quite like metaphors and we think they're quite useful in structuring how you think about things. So let's hear from Yuval Noah Harari, who spoke at TED last year on the back of his latest book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And he's, of course, a historian, an academic, who's also written a number of popular books, such as Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. In ancient times, land was the most important asset in the world. Politics, therefore, was the struggle to control land. And dictatorship meant that all the land was owned by a single ruler or by a small oligarchy. Then in the modern age, machines became more important than land. Politics became the struggle to control the machines. And dictatorship meant that too many of the machines became concentrated in the hands of the government or of a small elite. Now data is replacing both land and machines as the most important asset. So this is an interesting comparison to liken data 
to land the most valuable resource that any one party could possibly control. And it's a very pertinent comparison and goes back to the Wired article, which also makes the point that it is really the tech giants who collect, amass and own data who are not necessarily willing to actually give up that data or trade that data, but rather want to control this data because it is in monopolizing the data that the power ultimately lies that these companies can wield. So data, not as a commodity, not as oil, but as the most important asset that any one party could control at any point. So the point then is that you don't want it to be like a commodity, right? You don't want it to be like this thing that is the same for everyone. These companies want data to be specific, contextual, relevant to their business. And the focus then, if data is not like oil, a commodity, but like land, like an asset, the focus then is not on trading it. It's not on creating and selling data, but on controlling data, on owning data, on making it relevant, on exploiting it, and amassing a lot of it to then be in a position that you can control like the advertising market, for example, or e-commerce, like in the example of Amazon. And these are all points that Harari goes to some lengths to explain, because if you're talking about ownership and exploitation, once you concentrate that in the hands of a very small number of people or indeed single individuals, think monarchies if we're talking about land, people will at some point rise up and try to rectify that imbalance. And we've seen that with monarchies around the world toppling. We've also seen this in the case of capital, in the case of ownership of means of production. We've seen communist revolutions or we've seen the emergence of democracy of people wanting to access to take part in both the ownership and the exploitation of some of these assets. What we're seeing, however, in the case of data, and this is quite interesting, and we are yet to see how this will play out, and Harari makes this point as well, is that because this process is a lot less transparent and because it affects us in different ways, people will find it much more difficult to challenge established practices and to challenge giants like Google and Facebook. But it is nonetheless a fairly grim prediction to say that if this concentration of control, ownership and exploitation continues, then there will be some pushback, whether this will be by the users who might abandon platforms or who might not want to give consent or indeed by regulators. And we've seen some of the beginnings of this in Europe with new legislation around data collection practices. And we don't know where this process is going, but the point that we're making is that it is the kind of metaphors that we're using to talk about data that will allow us to actually make those points. And it is here that the oil metaphor isn't really helpful because it suggests that it is just something that is fluid, that can be traded, that is as uncomplicated as oil as a commodity. Whereas the land metaphor allows us to see in a much better way the role that data might play in many of the problems that we've been discussing with these mega platforms. And this is a good point to move to our next story, because that actually talks about how vast amounts of data can be exploited. This has really been all over the news. We've picked one from The Guardian titled New AI Fake Text Generator May Be Too Dangerous to Release, Say Creators. 
So the story reports on OpenAI, and OpenAI is a nonprofit artificial intelligence research company, and behind it are the big names. There are the Elon Musks, and there's Microsoft behind it. There's Amazon Web Services, Y Combinator Research, Infosys, that's the Indian multinational IT company. And OpenAI has developed a system called GPT-2, successor, of course, of GPT, that can generate fake text. So it's artificial intelligence that is capable of generating believable, coherent pieces of texts that are virtually indistinguishable from those written by a human being. So think deep fakes for text. Before we give you a sample of this, we'll just say that the company has taken the unusual step of not releasing their research publicly. Let's remember OpenAI, the nonprofit research company's entire goal is to democratize some of this research. So they publish everything that they research, they make it available to the general public. But in this case, they have chosen not to do so. So before we talk about why they chose not to release this research, because they say it's too dangerous, let's take a look at what this algorithm actually does. So what you start out with is giving the interface a sentence to get it going. In this case, The Guardian provided the following fragment. Brexit has already cost the UK economy at least £80 billion since the EU referendum. And... This is what the algorithm came up with as a story on the back of this first sentence. And the system continued. And many industry experts believe the economic damage from Brexit will be greater still. In some cases, the costs will be far harsher. A recent report published by the Royal Society of Arts found that the UK could lose up to 30% of its top 10 universities in the future, a move that threatens to push many of our most talented young brains out of the country and onto campuses in the developing world. This is a particularly costly blow. Research by Oxford University warns that the UK would have to spend nearly $1 trillion on post-Brexit infrastructure to replace the lost international talent from overseas. And that's only the beginning. So the point here is that the text created by this AI is coherent, it's believable, but it is entirely fake and untrue. It is compiled of its body of 8 million web pages that the algorithm was trained on. So you give the interface a couple of words or a sentence and the engine comes up with a text that reads like it was written by a human that combines facts, some data some prose, some commentary, and for all intents and purposes, sounds like a real news article. Now, the authors point out that this doesn't work in every case. It works in about half of the cases, but the quality of text is so good that they opted not to release the algorithm. And before we move any further and try to unpack this a little bit, we want to make it quite clear that this is not just about news. So you could use this for fiction writing, for instance, another excerpt that was given to the algorithm was the opening line of George Orwell's 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. The system will recognize that this is somewhat vaguely futuristic and it sounds a bit like a novel. And so it continued with, I was in my car on my way to a new job in Seattle. I put the gas in, put the key in, and then I let it run. I just imagined what the day would be like. A hundred years from now, in 2045, I was a teacher in some school in a poor part of rural China. I started with Chinese history and history of science. So the algorithm 
even recognizes the kind of genres that these first few words imply. Now, we need to point out that obviously this AI doesn't think, it doesn't comprehend anything. So what it does is it uses a large body of text that it was trained on to then produce these texts. And the way this works is the same as we've discussed on the podcast previously. It's a class of algorithms called generative adversarial networks where one AI will randomly attempt to create a text and another one that was trained on actual human-created texts will then judge that text and say, uh, yeah, no, that doesn't pass muster. So the other algorithm will then go back and create something else. And back and forth a million or so times, over time, the text created by the one algorithm will slowly, slowly start to pass the judgment text until they are no longer distinguishable from human-created text in terms of coherence, style. But of course, those texts are random in the sense that what is said in the texts is indeed fake, it's not true, and it is just something that sounds like, and in terms of the makeup of the language, is like the texts in those different genres, be it news, be it poetry, be it fiction writing. So let's unpack why is this so dangerous, because really every single news outlet this week has pointed out how this is spelling out the end of the world. And we don't want to spend too much time on the implication that they've created this AI, these robots, they're coming for us. They're so good now at you know understanding language and comprehending because that's, of course, not what is happening here. No, we have not created intelligent beings. That's, of course, bullshit. That is bullshit. So why is this so dangerous? First of all, of course, because the texts that are being created are highly believable, they're coherent, and they can be used as fake news stories on social media and so on and so forth. If this technology was indeed democratized, as was the original intention of OpenAI. And we've actually foreshadowed this conversation previously on The Future This Week. We had a very interesting story that we picked up back in September 2017. So about a year and a half ago, we had a look at a story that was reporting on how AI had learned to write totally believable product reviews and what the implications of writing fake product reviews was. We went through research that was being done at the University of Chicago that was putting forward restaurant reviews that were not only believable, but also perceived as useful by readers of those reviews. And of course, we've discussed the problems of fake news online in the context of fake videos, of creating believable real-time animated faces, puppeteering, other people's faces. And that really points to the heart of the matter here. And it goes without saying, and I'm saying it anyway, that we will, of course, put all of this in the show notes. So while most of the conversation online has been about weaponizing this to write fake news or weaponizing this to promote conspiracy theories or affect election outcomes and so on, one of the things that we had highlighted repeatedly in our previous conversations around such technology have been around the ability to use this technology to flood channels with content where the emphasis is not necessarily on the content itself, but on the number of such posts. So in the case of restaurant reviews, this was the ability to generate enough reviews to break the business models that relied on the veracity of the reviews. In the context of elections, we were talking about just the ability to generate so many voices as to raise issues to the top of the conversation in a certain electorate, let's say, if you could believably impersonate ordinary 
ordinary people telling their ordinary stories, then you could shift the focus of the conversation. So the main problem is not that this technology creates believable fake text because humans can do this. The real worry is that this can now be automated and be done at scale, that this technology could be plugged into and underpin fake profiles on Twitter, on Facebook, and could really create massive problems for news outlets, for social media sites, could invade the political process at a speed and scale that we haven't actually seen before. So not only can you now create fake reviews or fake stories, fake novels, fake news, but you could even put a face to them now. So we can now create fake believable faces and we'll put another article in the show notes from this week which points to thispersondoesnotexist.com which showcases this technology similar algorithms that do with faces what we see here with text and then have those faces become fake people propagating fake opinions about political candidates using this technology so this is the real worry here the worry that we will see a gigantic flurry of fake stuff online, which will make it very hard to discern what is real, what is fake. And so the race is on not only to generate the equivalent of spam filters for this age, but also to think about how to protect business models that rely on this sort of content being hard to generate. But let's think about where this technology could potentially be used for good or be useful in the context of various business models. Because, of course, every time such a thing comes on, the scaremongering goes through the roof. But there are, of course, instances where such technology could be used for positive purposes. The Wired article reporting on the same story, we'll include this in the show notes, reports on a startup called Narrative Science, where a professor from Northwestern University that works with such technologies is using it to generate things like business documents or financial reporting, where you do need to translate large amounts of data that you might have in an Excel sheet into something that is more easily accessible or more easily reportable to the public. But while in the context of spamming channels with fake news, the quality problems that a system like this might have, remember it's only about half of the stories are truly believable, in contexts where we want to use this for generating useful information, for example, creating conversational agents that can hold a conversation, we of course run into problems that we have seen previously, such as that texts might be severely biased or might have racist undertones, might be offensive. And it might turn out that these problems are really hard to fix. Whilst we spoke previously on the podcast, and it was a very long time ago, about Tay, the Microsoft chatbot that was unleashed on Twitter and became racist, had to be taken off shortly after being allowed to interact with the public at large. Microsoft has since tried to create a politically correct version. So think about a younger sister to Tay called Zoe. This became the teenage best friend with hashtag friend goals and downright Shakespearean version of the earlier Tay, which became a highly stereotyped version that would 
send you senseless gags from the internet, maybe resent, you know, solving your math problem, but being there for you to give you advice, but having a very blunt filter when it came to any word that might signal that this conversation might have political overtones or this conversation might have racial overtones. For instance, when told that someone had had good falafel in the Middle East, she would respond, let me make myself clear, I'm not going to chat politics with you. So... This example lets us once again point out what is happening here. The texts being generated are just recombinations of words based on how close those words are located in the text that the algorithm was trained on. And while the results have become really, really good, this is the result not of a quantum leap in the intelligence behind it or the way these algorithms work, but because the researchers were able to train this algorithm on an unprecedented amount of text, which has led to these improvements in quality. But in order to weed out any problems, it would need human intervention. And that would always come at the expense of the kind of engagement or conversational veracity of these texts being created. So a problem that is very hard to fix because we're only talking with text recombination here, not with, you know, truly intelligent beings. Which brings us to... This one was reported in geek.com. Meet the Buddhist robot that gives sermons at an ancient Japanese temple. A 400-year-old Japanese temple just tapped an AI monk to attract young worshippers. This guy is called Android Canon and was developed by well-known Osaka University intelligent robotics professor Hiroshi Ishiguro. And here is what he, she or it sounds like. So Android Canon stands at 77 inches makes eye contact, is pre-programmed with sermons from the Heart Sutras in Japanese, but can also translate verses into Chinese and English. A truly religious landmark, as the article points out. And this is all we have time for today. See you soon. On the future... Next week. This week? Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.